Hi, this is Bob Groves. Welcome to our podcast series, Faculty in Research. This week, we welcome Professor and Interdisciplinary Chair in Science in the Department of Physics at Georgetown University, Jeff Erbach. Jeff joined the department at Georgetown as an assistant professor in 1996 and was promoted to professor, full professor of physics in 2006. He served as chair of the department several times as co-director of the program on science and the public interest from its founding until 2011, and then uh, director of the Institute for Soft Matter Synthesis and Metrology from its founding in 2011 until 2015. Jeff and his collaborators study complex dynamics in a variety of systems, ranging from shaking sand to complex fluids to migrating neurons. Using the techniques of statistical physics and nonlinear dynamics, together with advanced imaging techniques, image processing and computer simulations, the team is trying to develop quantitative, testable descriptions of multifaceted, interacting, ever-changing systems that might at first glance seem just like a complicated mess. So Jeff, I'm delighted to have you with us today, and I'm so happy that you're willing to, to just share a bit of your own reflections on, on your career as a scientist, and, and maybe we ought to begin that way. So. How, how did you end up in science? Do you remember those first moments where that became an intriguing option for you? Thank you, Bob. Uh, and before I started answering, trying to answer the question, I'll say I'm delighted to be here as well, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about, about my work. I don't actually honestly remember when I first became interested in science, because I think I always have. I don't know exactly how I came to be this way, except that I think it has something to do with my mother. Uh, my father died when I was very young, so was, she raised me as a single parent. Her degrees are in psychology, uh, and she studied gerontology and ran a senior center for 30 years. So she's not a scientist, but she's one of the most analytic people that I know. Uh, and I think I developed that approach to looking at the world from her. And I was, oh, have always been interested in trying to answer the why question, why things happen. And what drew me to physics is the, um, our continued search for a fundamental understanding. In science, the why always leads you to something more fundamental. And in physics, you end up at the laws of nature, fundamental laws of nature. Uh, and we search for what I would call a, a first principles understanding, where you really can go from the fundamental law of nature to the phenomena that you're observing. And that's what I really like. And, and I think a piece of that is that, that in the end, nature and the experiment is always in charge. There's a thing that happens when we have scientific arguments. These are people having discussions, uh, personalities come into play. Uh, and there's an approach that uh, we used to in graduate school call uh, proof by intimidation, where somebody asserts that something is true because they're so confident that it's true. And of course that happens in physics as well as in other fields. But in physics, more than in other fields, the experiments provide the final answer in a clear and, and hopefully we shoot, shoot for a, an unambiguous answer. And I love that. I love asking questions, hard questions, where I know that in the end, nature is going to tell us what the answer is. And we just try to be the first one to figure that out. Do you think of yourself as an experimentalist? 
Mostly, yes. I hesitate because I do uh, enjoy doing computer simulations, which is a different branch of the field. And uh, I work closely with people who do theorists. But in the end, my primary work is to do the experiments to generate the data that uh, tell us what's happening. In, in that regard, I'm, I'm interested in, in, uh, in just reflecting back on the different problems you've worked on in your life. How do you pick them? What, what becomes intriguing about a problem? Is it that uh, there's a controversy around it and you want to solve that controversy? Or is it uh, an application that you find just fascinating? What, what, what motivates you? So that's a really good question, and it doesn't have a simple answer. My, over the course of my career, I've worked in a wide range of areas, and I tend to, tend to jump around a little bit. A combination of um, short attention span and wide range of interest. So there's always far more problems I'm interested in working on than I have time or resources to, to uh, approach. So the ones that I end up working on, it's, it's a combination of there has to be a good fundamental question. Uh, that's what drives me nature doing something that surprises me that we that I don't understand why and I want to answer it. Typically, it also will relate to who I can work with. I don't like working alone. So almost everything I do is collaborative. There is always a resource limitation issue. Resources quite broadly defined. That might be people who could actually work on the problem. It, but more often, it's something like, do we have the tools to answer the question? There's lots of interesting questions I would love to answer, but I don't know how. And so I don't work on those. Let's, let's go back to, to the collaboration. I, I think I have this number right. The, the paper on the Higgs boson had over 5,000 authors. So physics is renowned as a, a team sport. Tell us a little about how you think about collaboration. So why did you say what you just said? Why, why do you like to work with people as opposed to by yourself? I'm not sure I can answer the question as to wh why I like one thing versus another. But I can say that the interactive part of collaborative research is just really fun. It's, I like solving puzzles, but I prefer solving them with other people. And it's particularly satisfying when there are people with complementary skills and interests, complementary skills and ability, same interest in the sense that they're interested in the, solving the same problem that I am. The teams that I work with are much smaller than the team you described. With high energy physics and many other fields of physics where the instrumentation is so involved, so, comp so sophisticated that you need groups of people working on every different piece of it, inevitably leads you to the, what I would consider to be unmanageably large teams. It, it's remarkable to me that they can still manage to do good science. They do. They, they're extremely skilled at uh, bringing all those folks together. I would much rather be able to look in the eyes of everybody I'm working with. Uh, we'll work with a team that can meet in a small group. Uh, and part of my career trajectory was looking for things that had the richness that I was interested in, but were also accessible to small team science, not big team science. So one of my research themes is biophysics. I started in that direction in looking at neuronal development, how the brain wires itself up. I had no background in that and no business working in it really, but there was a guy at the medical center who was interested in getting the perspective and the skills of a physicist. And so he came and started talking to me, uh, asking questions, most of which I couldn't answer. Uh, but we started working together. That was in 98. And I spent then a couple of decades essentially doing during neuro neuroscience related to biophysics, simply because of that connection. 
So that was a case where a potential collaborator introduced you to a problem. Correct. You had complementary skills, and I assume you liked one another and just kept working. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly how it how it worked. Yeah. I was going to say a situation where it was a little bit more my initiative when I first came to Georgetown. I had uh, my PhD research was studying superconductivity. So you take metals and you get them very cold, and this really fascinating phase transition happens where it goes from being a normal metal where it conducts electricity but loses energy in the process to a material where it can conduct electricity with no loss at all. And it's quite remarkable, but the only way to see it is to cool things down to really low temperatures. So it requires both specialized equipment uh, and you are limited to some extent in the ways you can probe it. I was interested in the, in the complex dynamics and phase transitions, but I wanted, system, wanted to look at things that were more accessible. So my postdoc, I did research in nonlinear dynamics and chaos, in particular working on uh, transport and fluids. And it turns out if you look at how particles are transported by fluid flows, there's tremendous complexity in that process. And yet there are some aspects of it that are accessible to what I would call a first principles understanding. How much of that was new terrain for you as a postdoc? So you complete your dissertation, you enter this postdoc. Was that like learning a whole new subfield or? Pretty much. There was a little bit of overlap, but a relatively substantial amount of overlap in that the idea of phase transitions, a transition from one type of behavior to another is common to both disciplines. But the nonlinear dynamics is much more applied math, I would say. Uh, and it was stuff that I hadn't studied. So I had to actually pull out undergraduate textbooks and teach myself some, a bunch of new stuff. And that was fun too. And I had an exceptionally uh, thoughtful and supportive postdoctoral advisor, ran a relatively large group. So there were a bunch of different things going on. So I had the opportunity to learn a range of things. And he was patient with me as I was learning the new field. In some sense, I suppose that was, became a model for me going forward because I have fairly frequently jumped from, from things that are comfortable and that I know well in, into new areas where I'm a, a bit of a novice. So you had one postdoc or two postdocs? One postdoc, it was a three-year postdoc. So, so I'd be interested in, I know you're thoughtful about different disciplines and it is uh, very interesting to watch the natural sciences and the biomedical sciences uh, use postdocs as almost a matter of fact stage of development of a scientific career. Mm -hmm. My impression is that, you know, those are growing in, in numbers over the decades. From, from your own reflections on, on your career, was that a crucial point for you? Did that really reshape your career, redirect, if you will? Did it uh, inform the first years of, of your research? Yes, very much so. To some extent, by design, I had decided towards the end of my PhD that I wanted to do, be doing something different for a couple of different reasons. Partly my own intellectual interests, partly, as I mentioned, the, uh, this, I guess I would say the resource demands of the work I was doing as a, for my PhD. Uh, I thought I might want to teach at a small college, and I knew I couldn't do the low temperature physics there. But there's another piece to it, too, and this is advice that I give to students frequently. I think that when, when you start a career as a faculty member, you're expected to uh, establish your own research identity. It's hard to do that if, if your PhD research and your postdoc research are in the same area. But if you pick a different area, 
then your combination, my particular background with low temperature physics and dynamical systems is relatively unique. Very few people have that particular combination of skills. So that made it easier for me when I was starting out as a faculty member to pick a research area that was both unique to me, but also I was uniquely qualified to look at. I ended up doing research, essentially looking at phase transitions in driven dynamical systems. So it, to a certain extent, combined what I had learned as, an, as a graduate student and the new things that I learned. Uh -huh. as, and, then, and it was more easily easy for you then to define yourself as an independent researcher. Correct. If, if I had stayed in the same sort of research, uh, silo is too strong of a word, but the, the research sub-discipline, I think it might have been harder. Yeah. Um, so go back to the moment when you uh, took your first teaching position. Mm -hmm. So what was that transition like? So that was after the postdoc. You arrive and uh, do, you, do you remember those first days of juggling various duties? I do remember a little bit. I, I'm going I'm to tell an aside. The most remarkable thing for me the first time I walked into Rice Science Building at that time was that I had been in that building, I guess it was 15 years earlier. My wife was an undergraduate physics major at Georgetown and I had visited her when we were dating. Uh, and so the building was familiar to me and it was a very odd feeling to go in there as a, as a place of work. But very soon it became the home of my, my research. I would say for me, the transition was relatively easy for a couple of reasons. One is I think I've always been an academic at heart. I went to a small college, had close relationships with my faculty there. I think I, I had a sense of what it was gonna be like to be a professor. As I mentioned, my postdoctoral mentor was a wonderful guy. He was nurturing in many ways, including getting me involved in grant proposals, but also giving me the opportunity to teach. So I did teach. I taught at the University of Texas, and I learned that I did not want to teach at a large research university, particularly courses to engineering students that are sort of factory-like, but I had at least some experience. Uh, and then finally, Joe Serene was chair of the physics department when I came in, and he was a wonderful mentor uh, and helped, uh, helped me make that transition. Jim Freerix and Amy Liu were hired a couple of years before me and they also were wonderful mentors. So I really felt like I had all the support I needed uh, and it was relatively smooth and painless, I would say. So um, we all know that faculty are juggling research, teaching and various service obligations, but I'm interested in, in uh, the interface between research and teaching and my uh, observations as a provost often is the faculty who uh, have figured out how to integrate those two in various ways are happier and, and more successful. So I'm, I'm interested in how, how your research informs your teaching and vice versa. I guess I would say for me, they are closely intertwined. The teaching in the sciences is to some extent a, a continuum because we sort of use an apprentice model so that we have classroom teaching in the early years that evolves into more research-related mentoring. I've always had undergraduates involved in my research. Uh, and then graduate students, again, are taking some courses, but they start doing research fairly early on. So there's no clear line in my head between teaching and research. It is, like I say, a continuum. But even the classroom teaching I feel is very much integrated with, with my research. The courses are organized around a particular subject, but I've had the opportunity, 
partly because of the courses I've been teaching, but partly because of the breadth of my interests as a researcher to always be able to find connection points between the material I'm teaching in a classroom, the material in a textbook, and the things that I'm trying, the questions I'm trying to answer in my research. Uh, and it's just great fun to be able to make those connections. I think the students really appreciate it. So I will always try to find places within the courses where I can say, oh, and by the way, here's some work that I've done or one of my colleagues has done. Uh, and here's how this thing that we figured out 50 years ago, we, the community figured out 50 years ago and is in the textbook is actually informing the questions that we're answering now, we're trying to answer now in the ongoing research. So I have, I've really enjoyed that piece of it. There's a broader piece, you know, being at uh, Georgetown, one of the things I like about it is that we have a lot of communication across departments. I have the opportunity to work with faculty in other disciplines, in the sciences primarily, but also outside of the sciences. You mentioned in my bio that I spent some time working with the program on science and the public interest. Science policy has always been an interest of mine. When I first, in my first few years here, I taught a class uh, that I developed um, with some help from Chuck Weiss, who was then directing the STIA program, that was directed specifically for students in STIA on the, essentially the science behind, I, would, I guess I would say policy relevant science. Uh, the things that we know in physical science that inform the sorts of things that policymakers should be aware of. And I'm thinking now about uh, when I come back from my sabbatical, teaching a course that would similarly be aimed at a broad audience, using some examples from physical science to try to illuminate how science really works and when and how and why the community should trust scientists when we're speaking about the things we, we think we know about. Well, we're living in times, as you well know, it probably motivates your ideas on the course, where uh, more and more people are questioning the results of science. And, and one of the things I think we all notice is a, a failure uh, on our side of communicating that any particular current finding in science is our best understanding of what the truth is. But Indeed, that just becomes the target for the next research project to see whether we can dig, whether we can undo our understanding or enrich it in various ways. Is that how you see one of our, our problems as, uh, as scientists communicating to the larger public? Yes, I think that's, I think that's definitely a, a root of at least part of the problem is that that is what we do. And when you connect that to both the, the um, polarized climate that we're in right now, but also the, the way that public communicators, reporters, the news cycle have to work, it creates a real challenge because every paper that comes out is just one small group of people's opinion, one side of a very complex problem. And typically if it's a good paper, it raises more questions than it answers. And as you say, it's, it's the start of the next argument or a piece of an ongoing argument. And it's very hard to decide how, how to then communicate that process. And a piece of what I think we need to help the public understand is the difference between those issues where there is ongoing debate, there is ongoing uncertainty, and those issues where we pretty much come to consensus and we think we, we have a good answer now. And we as a community have evolved a pretty good system for doing that. We, we tend not to notice it because we, we just do it, 
but it's important to explain to a broader audience the difference between a peer-reviewed article in a so-so journal, a peer-reviewed article in a major journal, a review article by several leaders in the field, and a study by the National Academy of Sciences. All of those things are scientific statements, but they have different weight. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned peer review because I'm, I'm as an outside observer watching physics speed up the delivery of findings to itself prior to peer review and then on web platforms, essentially getting the reviews post hoc uh, by commentary on findings. I, I find it as a fascinating development in the organization of science. And there aren't too many other sciences that have moved in that direction. And so I, what, are, what are your thoughts on kind of the health of peer review in the sciences? I, I also know journal editors who are finding it more and more and more difficult just to get people to review articles. So uh, uh, being an editor seeking peer review prior to publication is getting tougher and tougher. So what, what are your thoughts on that? The, that? Those are great questions. I would say, so first of all, it's true that the physical sciences are in many ways in the lead on this, but it's not unique to the physical sciences. And in particular now with the need for uh, information on the coronavirus as quickly as possible, we're seeing it really, really accelerate. And I, I think it has to be that way, but it is, it is nervous making as a fundamentally conservative scientist who thinks that things should move slowly and carefully and thoughtfully. It's definitely a challenge that is going to, to um, occupy the minds of our, our community leaders for a while uh, as we try to, to navigate this. I'm not too worried within the physical sciences because there is so much support for the peer review process and so much invested in it. I think the challenge with the getting the peer review peers to do the reviewing is largely associated with the uh, explosion in the number of publications. And so that's where we need to try to figure out how to do some effective population control. <laughs> but uh, maybe I should choose my words more carefully, but, uh, but it doesn't, to me at least in, in what I have seen, it doesn't undermine the fundamental workings of the discipline. That uh, those early exposure to results that haven't been peer reviewed are just part of the conversation. And the conversation has become very delocalized and that's mostly a good thing. We have an advantage in the physical sciences that uh, we don't have nearly as much of an issue with the, the reproducibility problem that some other disciplines face, simply because fundamentally our systems are easier to deal with. It's much easier to make sure that, you know, so I work on complex fluids, I like to work on shear thinning suspensions. They do all kinds of weird things, but I know I can, make a material that's exactly the same as my collaborators in Paris or the people who are trying to prove me wrong in Japan. Whereas if you're working with cells, even if it's a clonal cell line, cells remember their history awful well. And so it's hard to know whether they're exactly the same cells. If you're doing a psychology experiment, clearly you're working on different people. If you're doing an experiment in Georgetown versus in Asia somewhere. So. Yeah. So that gets back to what I was saying at the beginning, that I'm drawn to questions where it's relatively for, straightforward to have, let, make sure nature has the final word. And we do the experiment. We look for the test. So, of course, never quite that simple. But that's where our answers come from. Let me, let me 
turn your attention to your, your uh, to another part of your life. You you were key in the creation of the Institute of Soft Matter at Georgetown, one of our premier research institutes. And I'm I'm interested in in uh, kind of your original aspirations along with your colleagues for that institute and the the early days and how how it was built up to what it is now. Uh, thanks for that question. I love talking about that. It's certainly a story that has worked out wonderfully. It's a story that I'd say has its roots back in 2007 when we hired Dan Blair, uh, who is a colleague of mine in the physics department. We started collaborating almost from day one. Uh, we have complementary skills. He's an extraordinarily talented instrument builder uh, and built some capabilities that are key to the research that I'm doing now. And it really was, it's just been a very uh, uh, fruitful collaboration from the beginning. The other thing that we started doing, I guess in the late 2000s, the late aughts, uh, was building collaborations with NIST. Uh, because we knew Georgetown being small, particularly in the physical sciences, uh, we needed to connect to local resources as best we could. Yeah, the National Institute of Science and Technology. Yes, thank you. Uh, National, who's made, they have two, two main laboratories, one in Boulder, Colorado, and one in Gaithersburg. And so it's, of course, the Gaithersburg one that we interact with most closely. And so that was really the foundation on which we wanted to build our soft matter within physics. And then we were collaborating uh, or interacting, not necessarily actively collaborating, with uh, Dick Weiss and Steve Metallo and some other folks in chemistry. Soft matter is a materials problem. So there's physics aspects and chemistry aspects. So that was the foundation. Uh, and then a certain amount of being in the right place at the right time when the opportunity for Recovery Act funding came through. Uh, Ali Whitmer in your office was key for putting together the proposal that led to the, the founding of the Institute. And then we spent several years, I think, building a common vision with their roughly 10 faculty who were engaged primarily physics and chemistry about where we wanted to go. Uh, and then I think where things really accelerated was when we could do some hires. In 2015, we brought uh, Peter Olmsted and Emanuela Delgado here, both of whom, so they're both theorists. Emanuela focuses on computation. Peter focuses more on analytical work, so deriving equations, both with substantial overlap, that they're both very broad in their interests, but substantial overlap with the research going on at Georgetown including my own interests and Dan's interests. So we have the, the teams that I'm involved in now, many of them are now Georgetown teams, Georgetown physics and chemistry teams, including Peter and Moella. And they, together with Dan and together with Dick and, and um, Steve and other folks, have really created a, a sense of community here, built around interrelated science problems. And that has made it a much richer place for us to do work, but more importantly, a much richer place to train students. Undergraduates, graduate students bring in postdocs. We really feel like they get to see the breadth of the field. They get all the resources they need to find their own direction, develop their own skills. Uh, and it's become a very satisfying place to do research and teaching. Now, as I said, it's one of the proud moments of Georgetown watching that emerge. And and your story, I think, has has important ingredients. You can't do this overnight. It takes a while. People have to get to know one another, 
as people and as get a sense of complementary skills and shared interests and problems. And that can't be rushed, but once you have it, it's a magical thing to preserve. And uh, we're proud that we have it. And thank you for what you did to build it. Let me end with a question on, on what you're, you know, what's the most exciting thing you're doing right now? What, so you're on sabbatical, you're probably thinking a lot, doing reading and so on. You mentioned the course that you're motivated to propose. What else is popping in your head? Well, so I guess my main research focus right now has been, and I'm quite excited about it because I think we're making real progress, has been about trying to really understand shear thickening. So this is this process where a suspension that's a mixture of a fluid and a solid, the classic example is a cornstarch and water mixture, can go from something that's liquid-like to solid-like when you push on it. Uh, and you may have seen the videos of people who can go running across a, a, a bathtub full of a cornstarch water mixture as long as they're moving fast enough. But if they stop, they will sink in. And this is an example of a phase transition of the sort that I've talked about uh, has been an interest of mine for a long time. But it's one that happens as a result of applying a force in this case. And the community has been interested for a while in understanding both on a fundamental level and for practical applications, how this happens and how to control when you go from that liquid to the solid. It turns out that people have been doing experiments for a while on this and you see something fairly abrupt when you do the experiment, but you don't really see what's going on. You get just one answer that the, the viscosity or the stiffness suddenly goes as you speed up how fast you try to make the material move from low to high, liquid-like to solid-like. Well, together with Dan, we developed a tool for looking inside of the material as you are deforming it, as, you're, as you're, you're doing these mechanical tests and seeing what the stresses are. And what we found is that it doesn't go all at once from liquid-like to solid-like, it goes in patches. And the patches are very dynamic, they sort of appear and disappear. So there's phase transitions that are happening all the time, but they're coupled with the flow that you're inducing and the bigger, bigger system-wide boundary conditions, I guess I would say. So we were the first to see this. We had to couple it with what people already knew. People knew a lot about this transition. Uh, and it's trying to make that, connect those two somewhat disparate pictures that's really driving our research right now. I see. So this was a new discovery. Was this a surprising finding when you published it? Yep. It was uh, certainly was surprising to us. I think it was surprising <laughs> to the community. There were some hints when you go back and look at earlier literature. And I think to at least some researchers, it wasn't a shock. Uh, but I think most people, since they didn't have the data to drive that part of the conversation, they weren't really paying attention to the details of whether the system goes as a bulk from this low viscosity liquid-like state to a more solid-like state, or, whether, or how exactly it happens. And we now yeah. have the tools to try to and so that's a little more complicated than what I just described, and that's what's, that's what's consuming us right now, is to try to... Well, I can see why this captures your attention. This is great. Well, Jeff Erbach, I thank you for spending some time with us and uh, telling us your story, and I wish you all the best in your search for the truth. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. It's a real pleasure. Yeah.